We're at the end of uh, Exodus, Exodus 40. I know it, to you it seems very brief and very quick, but I was trying from a 30,000-foot level, give us the story. And so if you can find your way, if you have a Bible or you want to pull one out of the pew, uh, one in the pew on page 101 is the text. You can follow along on the screen or if you have some electronic device, uh, you can find your way to Exodus chapter 40. Here we have uh, Moses uh, setting up the tabernacle uh, for worship. And so listen to the description of uh, all the things that went into building this massive uh, tent. This is verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and he put in its poles and he raised up its pillars and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it. As the Lord had commanded Moses, he took the testimony and put it into the ark and he put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and he set it up the veil of the screen and the screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of the meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and he arranged the bread on it before the Lord. As the Lord had commanded Moses, he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table of the south side of the tabernacle. And he set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of the meeting before the veil. And he burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And he set the altar of the burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And he offered it, he offered on it a burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. May God help us to understand this, his word. And I know for many people in the church today, this whole chapter on, 
on building a tent that is humongous, that has rooms within it, that has all kinds of unusual worshiping instruments, is just foreign to us. Not just foreign, but strange. And if not strange, uh, something that can be skipped over as you're reading through the Bible. Oh, there's just a description. We don't have tabernacles anymore. It's not that important. We can just kind of skip it. But I want you to know, without the tabernacle, we lose the point of Exodus. The whole story finds its climax in a tabernacle. The story of Exodus begins with slavery, but it ends with worship. In fact, Charlton Heston got it wrong in the movie Ten Commandments, where he goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what Exodus tells us. It says that God sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go so that let me come out and serve me. Now, please understand that in the English language, in my office, I can't use this illustration much longer because there aren't very many printed dictionaries anymore, not with Wikipedia. But if you go into my office, I have this four, nearly 4,000 page Webster's Dictionary. And what, I'm, what I want you to know is that the English language is so precise that we've got so many shades of meanings that have their own words. That's not true as you go further and further back at language. When you look at Latin, it has a significant vocabulary. When you look at Greek, it has a significant vocabulary, but less than Latin. But when you go to Hebrew, those of us who, who, who sat in, in a seminary in Hebrew class and we had to memorize the words, we, we could memorize them all because there wasn't as many. And therefore, a word, because of its context, had shades of meaning. And one vocabulary word had to stand for many meanings. And that's the way this word serve is. Let my people go so that they can serve me. It has a dual purpose to explain service and worship. That it is appropriate to translate Exodus where God says, let my people go so they can come to out into the wilderness to worship me. And so the point of the story of Exodus is to take people out of slavery, but not just to freedom, that is to do whatever they want, but to come out and worship me. To be truly free means to worship God. It's the point of Exodus that we've been driving through for these last eight weeks. To try to understand that true freedom in this world is to worship the creator God who made us. And Exodus demonstrates that everybody in this world puts their ultimate hope in something or someone. And whatever that is, is what we serve. And whatever we serve gives us our identity and shapes our behavior. And that if that anything is other than God, then we're still slaves in the 21st century. Just as much as somebody had put chains on our ankles and our wrists. 
So until we worship God alone, we truly cannot be free. And this is why the tabernacle is so important that we just don't skip over because it seems like it's got instruments and, and uh, uh, things that are foreign to our senses and our experiences. We cannot miss the climax of the story that the people of God has, have come out of slavery into worship. Because until we bow down before our God, until we are ravished by his glory and the beauty of his presence, we're not truly free. And this is why what we're doing right here, right now, matters. It's not just a cool thing that Christians do once a week. We come together because this is for the purpose for what we were made to worship our creator God who has set us free. So I I just want to ask a few questions about the tabernacle to show you how the tabernacle works, how the tabernacle is the place by which we come into the presence of the glory of God and that transforms us, gives us our identity as people, as created beings. And so the first question is, why do we need tabernacles? Because truthfully, every civilization up till now has one or had one. You can go back and you can look at all ancient civilizations, all middle civilizations and all present all the way up until modern era had tabernacles or something like them. Sometimes they called them temples. They had other names, but ultimately this idea of a tabernacle is quite old and is deeply rooted in the human experience. Why? It is because every ancient civilization believed in three things. Until now, three things. Every civilization believed at one time that there was this material world, this this natural, physical place that we occupy space, but also they believed in another world, a spiritual world, a world that gave meaning and purpose and understanding to this world. And so... In the ancient civilizations of the world, there were always two worlds. The second thing every civilization believed is that there's a barrier between those two worlds. That though there is a material world and a spiritual world, though there is a natural world and a supernatural world, that there's a barrier between us and it. That we can't easily get in. And the third thing that every civilization up until now believed is that there was a mediator to get us in. There was a way to go in. Always that there's these two worlds, that there's a barrier, but there's a way to get through the barrier, a mediation, a help. Until now, the modern Western civilization has said, 
There's no second world. There's no spiritual, supernatural. There's just this. And you don't even, even if there was, you don't need it. Everything about this world can be explained inside this world. You don't need to get meaning from transcendence. You can get meaning right here, right now by understanding within this material place. Every civilization until now didn't believe that, but this civilization believes this. That you don't need access because you don't need it explained. Ancient people needed that stuff, not modern people. We've gotten past those things. We don't need tabernacles anymore. One of the great architects of that kind of thinking was a 20th century philosopher named McIntyre. He wrote a, a whole treatise on the not needing the supernatural. He said this, we are the first civilization in history that believes this world is not the product of the supernatural world, that we weren't created. We believe we happened. There is no purpose. We weren't designed for a purpose. Now, if that's true, it's impossible for us to have a conversation about right and wrong, good and evil, Truth and a lie. Because truth is only as good as what we can all agree to. And when that changes by the next majority, then truth changes. Because in Alistair McIntyre's world, there's no transcendent truth. There just is this. Robert Jarvik, if you don't know who he was, he was a 20th century heart surgeon who invented the artificial heart. He wasn't a believer, but this is what his view of the world is. He said, there are no basic human rights in reality. I, f- I find it ironic that a heart surgeon would even say that. They are conventions we agree to abide by. There is no scientific basis for thinking we are better than any other part of nature. We have no more basic rights than viruses other than those we create for ourselves with our own minds. If there is nothing beside this world, if all that there is is what we see, then he is right. But you know he's not right. You know that there is something else, even if you don't know what the something is. C.S. Lewis warned us in the 20th century in the weight of glory when he said, you cannot go on explaining away everything forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. In the book, he says this, he says, we see through things to see other things. When we're constantly explaining away the things by which we see through, we no longer can see. He says we're blind. Frederick Nietzsche, who some of you might have had to study in college, said this, and it's kind of famous line that he has or had. He's not alive anymore. He has perfect truth now. I don't mean that in a good way. He said, every truth claim is really a power play. But you know, if that's true, And so was that statement that Nietzsche was making a power play on us to give up the existence of a transcendent God. Sigmund Freud agreed with him. 
Sigmund Freud said, everyone's view of God is a psychological projection helping you to deal with your guilt and insecurity. I like what Dr. Gucci said about, the, about Sigmund Freud. He said, if Sigmund Freud was right, then why is there guilt and insecurity at all? If there is no God, what do we've got to be insecure about? Why would we be afraid? If he's true, if this is true, that all God is is a psychological projection in order to deal with guilt and shame, then so is his view, a way to get rid of guilt and shame. We all need a tabernacle because there's glory there. We need a tabernacle because there's meaning and purpose and weight and matter and hope there. Because that's what the word glory means. When it says that God came down in a cloud and and his glory filled the temple, the weight of truth, the weight of, of goodness and beauty was all filling that place. And we want to get in to that. And the tabernacle is the only way in. Otherwise, we are left with meaningless and hopelessness because there is no explanation, no transcendence, no goodness, no beauty, no glory. So if the only way into weight and matter and import and glory and beauty is the tabernacle, how does that work? How do you get in? Did you see the flow as I read through the passage, how Moses puts it all together? Now, I know he's putting up a base and some poles, but when he begins to fill it, when he begins to put the curtains up, do you notice the order in which he does it? He starts with the inside and works out. He starts with what has been often called the Holy of Holies, where there's a, an Ark of the Covenant that's not in Washington, D.C., if you've seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it it was where that they took the tablets, which is called the testimony in this passage, and and put it inside. And then he put the mercy seat, the covering over the ark by which God would sit and, and give mercy and forgiveness to his people. So he's beginning with the Holy of Holies. And then the next thing he does is what is often called the tent of meeting or, or the holy place where all of the activity went on on behalf of God's people. That's why there's an altar there. There's a, a table with bread on it. And on the other side is a lampstand. And then uh, as you uh, come further out, there's a, an outer court, which is the biggest a part of the tent with no roof and there's a laver there and that's a fancy way of saying a washing bowl where when you came into the worship place you washed your hands ceremonially and your feet to present that you're coming in washed clean. Why does he begin from the inside out? Because every time the most frequent phrase in this whole passage is and Moses did as God commanded. Why would God start with the inside out rather than the outside in. Because God is inviting us to come all the way in. Yom Kippur is going to come into existence shortly after this where one day a year, one person goes all the way in. 
But Ezekiel's going to tell us what? That eventually there's going to be a temple where not just one priest comes in, but we're all priests. And everybody can go all the way in. And so this tabernacle points to that world that is yet to come. But there's a problem, isn't there? We know there's a problem. Because down in verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And here's the saddest verse in the whole passage. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He could have gone in any time except when the Lord was there. Because there's a barrier. There are thick curtains all in this place that separate the people from the glory that we want, that we need, that we are pursuing. We want to be truly free, but we know we're not. We want to be good, moral people, but we're not. We know there's a barrier. We know that the tabernacle teaches us that there are thick curtains in this life. That's why C.S. Lewis, when he writes in his book, The Weight of Glory that I quoted from earlier, this one's in your worship guide, apparently. Then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of of our inconsolable secret. That's a long way to say this. There is a door that we have been knocking on our whole lives to get on the inside. And the tabernacle teaches us that someone has come and knocked that door open that we may come in. One day, we are told from scripture that everyone can come in into the very glory. Do you remember when Aaron wants to teach them this? He gives them a benediction. And he, and he starts out, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's light shine upon you and be gracious to you. But then he says something interesting. The, word, the old word is countenance. But it literally means face. Now may the face of God turn toward you and give you peace. And that's why this question is is the important question in the whole passage, which is, to whom does the tabernacle point us to? And everybody in Sunday school, that if you ask that question, they'd say, Jesus, and they'd be right. Do you know what Jesus said that got him killed? It wasn't the statement that he said he was God. It was the statement that he said, and it's recorded for us in Matthew 26, where he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. It befuddled them. They thought he was talking about the physical building because literally he had been teaching at the the temple and he was out in, in front of the temple when he made this statement. And they thought he was saying, I'm a terrorist and I'm going to blow this thing up. You see, Jesus is, is literally crucified, not just between two mere thieves. We, people, Romans did not execute people who stole from Kroger's. 
He executed people who led insurrections. And Jesus was being tried as an insurrectionist. I'm going to blow up this temple, but I'm going to build it back for you. The way that John gets at this in his gospel, in the beginning of John chapter 1, he says, "In, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. And then down in, in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and what? Tabernacled among us. That's what the word literally means. I know our English translations has the word dwelt because it does mean that, but literally it's the word for tabernacle and it's in the verb form. So it's tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. Jesus is saying two things. Yes, I'm God. I'm the Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle out there or in the wilderness or in the temple. And now I have come to you. The second thing is, not only is he the glory, he's the way into the glory. I am the real tabernacle that all the other tabernacles, including to all the pagan gods. Sometimes we we wonder, what's their purpose in the world? They're all pointing to Jesus. Even the false uh, uh, temples that are erected all over the world all point to one tabernacle where the glory has truly come down to be with us, to live with us. Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. Hebrews 10 says, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that's the holy of holies, the, the center of the tent, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living open for, the, for us through the curtain. This is his body. Let us draw near to God with the full assurance of faith. And therefore, if this is true, if what I'm saying is true here, and I believe it is, then we Christians, we're not nice people trying to be good. We're former slaves who have been redeemed and set free. And as a result, we have entered in to worship in the very presence, face to face with the Shekinah glory of God because it has come down to be with us. Have you seen the glory of God? Has this happened to you? The way Liz told her story, has that happened to you? Let me read you just a, a small story from a novel that was written in 2001. Uh, the, the author, you, you might have heard, his name is Jan Martel, and he, he wrote a book called Life of Pi that becomes a movie. But in the, in the, in the book, it has this conversation that a Pi has, the main character, with a priest that doesn't make it into the movie, and you're going to see why. He said, Father Martin uh, told me a story, and what a story. The first thing I felt was disbelief. What? Humanity sins, but God's son takes the blame and pays the price? That a God should put up with adversity? I could understand. But humiliation, death? I could not imagine the Krishna consenting to be stripped naked, whipped, mocked, dragged through the streets, and to top it off, crucified, and at the hands of mere humans to boot? I'd never heard of a Hindi God dying. Divinity should not be blighted by death. It's wrong. It was wrong of this Christian God to let his avatar die. 
Was it fake? Was it just shaming? Was his death real? Father Martin assured me that it was. But once a dead God, always a dead God, even a resurrected one. The son must have had a taste of death forever in his mouth. There must have been a certain stench at the right hand of God, the father. The horror must be real. Why would God wish that upon himself? Why not leave death to the mortals? Why make dirty what is beautiful? Spoil what is perfect. And the rest of that little paragraph in the book is Father Martin quoting John 1.14. And the word dwelt among us, tabernacled with us, and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. This is the glory of God who was put into the tabernacle way back in Exodus 40. And now is in the hearts through the spirit of God of believers. And so that only leaves one question. Where is that tabernacle today? We're the modern Western civilization, but we still need the tabernacle. First, it's in a grace-filled relationship with God. There were things you had to do to get into the tabernacle. You had to wash at the labor. You had to make a sin offering. You you had to bring uh, grain offerings. There are so many things that you had to do. You had to offer prayers. You had to say things in in the tent of meeting before you could go in. The poor priest on Yom Kippur, he he had to take three baths and wear three different change of clothing. And not one spot could be found on any of them. Or you had to start all over. In every religion in the world, it goes like this. I do good and then I'm in. Christianity is the only religion in the world that says I am in, therefore I do good. Jesus is the laver by which you are washed. He is not only the altar, he's the sacrifice on the altar for sin. And on the cross, he said it is finished. There is nothing left for you to do. It has been all accomplished. One of the amazing things of the cross, and you can go look it up, it's in Matthew's gospel of of the death of Christ. When you go there, you're going to see that when he utters those words, it is finished. There's a curtain in the Holy of Holies in the temple that is torn in two. Now, you know that if the religious leaders wanted to explain that, they would have said the curtain was torn from the ground to the top. Because then we could find somebody to blame for ruining the curtain. But it was rendered from the top to the bottom. Because it is God, through the death of Christ, has opened it up for us to come in. Filled with grace, what Moses could not do, we can. But secondly, the tabernacle is in the church. Among the community of believers, we know the scriptures teach where two or three have gathered together in your name, there God is in our midst. The church is the place where people see the beauty and the glory and the meaning and the purpose, the grace, the joy. We are the tabernacle of God. 
That's why Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? That word, you, are all plurals there. It's as if, 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 if Paul could put his Southern on, he would have said, don't y'all know, y'all are the temple of God and the spirit, spirit of God dwells in y'all. We lose that in the Northern translation. Does that kind of sum this up for you? What's going on here is, why do we need a tabernacle? Because that's where the glory of God is. That's what explains life. That's where we find our meaning and purpose. That's where we're truly free. How does it work? God has made a way for us to come all the way in through a person but not just a mere human mortal, but a God man, because that's to whom the God, the tabernacle points Jesus Christ. And where can we find that in two places it's in the heart of believers by the spirit and in the collection of God's people as we gather together in his name. Can I, can I quote a modern preacher for once? John Piper says it this way. Mission exists where worship does not. Can I just change that just a little? Worship is the purpose of mission. What we want is for everyone to bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. Because everyone will. Either on this side of eternity or on the next We are confident that there are people in our city who do not yet know the Lord. But we also know that if they will call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. But the rest of Romans 10 says that, how are they ever going to call on whom they have never believed? And how will they ever believe if they have never heard And how will they hear if they don't have a preacher? And please understand, Paul is not talking about the pulpit. He's talking about the people. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. We gather into worship. But the other half of Christianity, the other half of Christian life is that then we go out into the world, into the mission. We come in for worship, we go out to mission. It's like breathing in and out. It's the oxygen of the mission of God for the church to worship and then to go where people are not worshiping that they might worship because we believe everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's why the tabernacle is so important to us that we don't just run over it as as if it's just a bunch of language. We need it as much today as they needed it in the the 40th chapter of Exodus as they were in the wilderness in the second year of leaving slavery because it's how slaves become free. And you and I are in a world filled with slaves. And we have the news that breaks the chains, that sets them free 
by bringing them in. Let's pray. Father, so much of what you have done, you continue to do through the church. Jesus finished on the cross the work that was necessary to break the chains of slavery to sin and death. But the proclamation of that message you have given to the church as we gather to worship you, to find our import, our matter, our weight, our beauty, our glory and grace, we take that all out into the world that people who are in bondage might know there's a way to be truly free. You've made a way in. You've kicked the door down and you are setting your people free. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.